0: Today with a high of 73, partly cloudy night, overnight low near 55, and cloudy tomorrow and a bit warmer, high near 79. This is Radio Catskill.
1: After the news on the BBC World Service, join me, Joe Masterpolo, as I look back 20 years to the day the United States came under attack. There was this procession of people who had survived
2: limping up broadway in shock covered in the white dust it was
1: like a procession of ghosts many of us are still coming to terms with what happened some through art and music others through plays and books all of us just trying to share our stories
3: he went down with his trumpet just a couple days after 9 11. now people were not allowed there or anything but the firemen saw and they said, could you play your trumpet?" So he played the trumpet for them.
1: That's 9-11, the day that changed our lives forever. Straight after the latest headlines here on the BBC World Service.
4: Hello, I'm Eileen McHugh with the BBC News. People across America are remembering the victims of 9-11, the deadliest attack on U.S. soil which took place 20 years ago today when Islamist hijackers flew passenger planes into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. The Bell of Hope rang out at St. Paul's Chapel in New York at 8.46 a.m., marking the moment the first of two planes hit the World Trade Center. Neda Taufik was watching the ceremony.
1: At 8.46 a.m., the toll of the bell marked the moment the first plane flew into the North Tower. Heads bowed for a moment of silence. President Biden was there to pay his respects alongside other dignitaries, including two former presidents, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Today Joe Biden chose not to deliver remarks. He left that to relatives such as Mike Lowe, whose daughter Sarah was a flight attendant on American Airlines Flight 11.
5: And as we recite
6: the names of those we lost, my memory goes back to that terrible day when it felt like an evil specter had descended on our world, but it was also a time when many people acted above and
4: beyond the ordinary.
7: The names of all the victims were read out. Raw emotion
1: overcame the mothers, fathers, children, and relatives of those who spoke.
4: At the Pentagon, the Defence Secretary, Lloyd Austin, delivered an emotional but defiant speech. The Vice President, Kamala Harris, and the President at the time, George W. Bush, spoke at the ceremony in Pennsylvania, where the fourth plane was brought down by passengers and crew before it could reach its target. Mr. Bush praised their heroism.
6: The 33 passengers and seven crew of Flight 93 could have been any group of citizens selected by fate. The terrorists soon discovered that a random group of Americans is an exceptional group of people, facing an impossible circumstance. They comforted their loved ones by phone, braced each other for action, and defeated the designs of evil.
4: Tributes have been paid by leaders across the world. The French President Emmanuel Macron said they would never be forgotten. The leader and founder of Peru's Shining Path militant group, Abimayel Guzman, has died at the age of 86. The official Peruvian Truth and Reconciliation Commission says the Maoist rebel group was responsible for the deaths of more than 30,000 people during the country's 20-year civil war. Guzman was captured in 1992 and jailed for life after being convicted of terrorism charges. In July, he suffered health problems and was transferred to hospital from a maximum security prison. You're listening to the latest world news from the BBC.
8: This is Radio Catskill. I'm Liam Mayo from The River Reporter. The village of Monticello and the town of Thompson have joined together in applying for a $10 million grant from New York State's Downtown Revitalization Initiative. The initiative looks to fund projects which will make downtown areas more vibrant places to live, work, and play. Monticello and Thompson are applying for funding for a shared downtown corridor encompassing all of Broadway. Public comments so far have indicated that residents want the grant to go towards providing recreational opportunities and filling vacant storefronts. U.S. Representatives Antonio Delgado and Sean Patrick Maloney have sent a letter to President Biden urging him to quickly approve targeted assistance to Duchess, Orange, Putnam, Sullivan, and Ulster counties in the wake of Hurricane Ida. While President Biden previously approved an emergency declaration which provided direct federal assistance and reimbursement for mass care, representatives said that sustained targeted federal assistance is necessary for communities, homeowners, and small businesses affected by Hurricane Ida to recover and Sullivan 180 and its partners have announced that they have chosen Health Promotion Strategies, LLC, to lead the planning effort for the development of the Sullivan Hands for Health Network. The development of this network will support a community health worker program to serve people in the county at risk of or already diagnosed with chronic diseases such as high blood pressure or diabetes, and is funded by a one-year planning grant from HRSA, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Carol Ryan, the president of Health Promotion Strategies, is a previous Sullivan County Public Health Director and a proven leader in community health planning, research, and strategies. This News Roundup is produced in partnership with The River Reporter. I'm Liam
7: You're listening to Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.
1: Millions of New Yorkers thought Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, would be an ordinary day. For me, the strongest memory is just taking out my agenda and looking
2: at everything I'd written down for the week and thinking to myself, this is all irrelevant.
1: It was a beautiful morning and there was nothing to suggest What was about
8: to happen. Thousands of people could be dead after several hijacked passenger planes crashed into targets in New York, in Washington.
9: The center of New York is still smoldering with America's two tallest buildings in ruins.
1: By the end of the day, nearly 3,000 people had lost their lives and it
6: seemed like the whole world had changed. It looked like there was a giant hole in the sky, and it was like a hole in the heart of New York.
1: My name is Joan Masterpolo, and 20 years ago, I witnessed the destruction of the Twin Towers.
7: Like countless others, I'm still trying to make sense of that day. There's not a single story. There's not a single truth of an event. And so there were as many reactions to what happened to us on 9-11 as there were people in the building.
1: Over the next hour, I'll be sharing our stories of survival, recovery, and hope.
10: I made a series of work called the World Trade Center as a Cloud by using very, very fine layers of white translucent linen pulp on a very, very, very blue field.
1: This is 9-11, the day that changed our lives forever on the BBC World Service. Ask any New Yorker over the age of 20 about September the 11th and they'll almost all have a story to tell you, me included. I'm Joan Mastropolo and I became a volunteer at the 9-11 Tribute Museum. I am walking at the North Pool, the place where the North Tower once stood, and I try to come here every time to honor those people who came to work on the morning of September 11 and gave their lives. They simply vanished. I take visitors on guided walks around the memorial here. Two reflective pools surrounded by bronze parapets listing all the names of those we lost. Every day the 9-11 memorial organization place is a white rose on the name of someone who is celebrating a birthday today and so i'm standing at the name of margaret mary connor happy birthday margaret back in 2001 ann nelson was running the international program at columbia's graduate school of journalism
2: I turned on the television and
1: joined the millions of people who
2: watched the whole event unfold that morning. But I was aware of of this basic tape loop of the planes hitting the towers again and again, and these traumatizing images again and again, and this whole psychological desensitization that was going on. One thing that I remember very vividly was a few hours after the attack, There was this procession of people who had survived limping up Broadway in shock, covered in the white dust. It was like a procession of ghosts. They had the thousand yard stare. I'll never forget
1: that. Just a week after the attack, Anne heard about a fire captain who was struggling to write eulogies for eight men that he had lost.
2: And I worked with him and I wrote some eulogies. And I was profoundly moved, both by... The kind of men he was describing and by his love for them. And I felt moved to write something that the news media had been incredibly intrusive, in some ways harmful. Them intentionally trying to make him break down. How did it feel to lose your best friend in the collapse? And I, I didn't
1: want to be part of that pack. At a benefit, a few weeks later, she ended up talking to a theater director who was married to Sigourney Weaver.
2: And he said, well, my theater is going to go bankrupt. It's near the World Trade Center, but we want to do a play before we close it forever. And out of that conversation, I decided, and he decided, I should try to write a play. And a lot of what happened afterwards was a
1: surprise. Her play, The Guys, was based on Anne's experience of interviewing the fire captain. This is the second monologue.
2: Joan, the character that stands in for me, has come with her (laughs) pen and her notepad, ready to be very professional. And as the captain talks about the first man that needs a eulogy, she starts to choke up and react emotionally, which surprises the captain. And he looks at her and he says, are you okay? And
11: she looks at the audience and says, are you okay? That That was was what what we all kept asking each other the rest of September. What was the answer? The pebbles dropped in the water, the point of entry is you, yourself. Were you present at Ground Zero and wounded, suffocated, or covered in white ash? No? Guess you're okay. The first ring around the pebble, is your family okay? Did you lose someone in the towers or on the planes? The next ripple, friends, are your people okay? next ripple, if someone died in the tower that you had dinner with once and you thought was a really nice person. Are you okay? Next, if you look at a flyer of a missing person in the subway and you start to lose it, are are you okay? If all the flyers are gone one day, they're just gone. Are you okay? Is anyone okay? That first week I, I bought a coffee at Starbucks on the way to work and the guy at the counter handed me my cup and said, here's your change, God bless America. And I took a breath and said, are your people okay? And he said, only two missing. Only two.
2: The read-through was with Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray. And I remember they finished reading it, and there was just this silence. And they're like, well, we're going to do this.
1: The Guys debuted at the Flea Theater in December 2001. This is a
2: passage where Joan asks Nick, what are the senior guys like with the new ones? And Nick answers, well, yeah, you know. They, know,
9: they, they show him around. Some are more patient than others. They give them a little bit of a hard time. And not exactly hazing. You know, it goes with the territory. Jimmy was doing fine. He was a regular guy. Low-key, well-liked. He came in at the same time with another probie... Hipolito Diaz. I love that name. You gotta love that name. <laughs> Where do they get these names? It sounds like a ballpark. You put him in the outfield. N- now batting for Mariano Riviera.
6: Hipolito Diaz.
9: <laughs> Hippos missing too. He's missing with the guys from the Indian.
2: New York City's fire department had lost over 300 men and they move around the firehouses quite a lot they go through the same academy so that meant that lots of people lost friends they they would lived and worked with because they also you know they sleep in the firehouse when they're on duty they eat in the kitchen it's a family and and wanted very much to portray to the public what this devastating loss meant it wasn't just a number
1: Many high-profile actors have appeared in the play. Tim Robbins and Susan
2: Sarandon jumped in. All of these marquee actors wanted to do something, and that happened internationally as well. Norma Aleandro did it in Argentina. I mean, it became a phenomenon, and there have been hundreds and hundreds of productions. And there's a film with Sigourney Weaver and Anthony de la Paglia as the captain.
12: I drove as fast as I could through Queens into Brooklyn, where I lived. I ran upstairs, changed into my uniform, got my equipment, and I drove to my base, which is in central Brooklyn.
1: Guy Sanders was an office worker and part-time supervisor at a private ambulance company in 2001.
12: I told my operations manager I wanted to be at the site, and he agreed with me. He, He gave me an ambulance, he gave me a partner gave me 15 extra tanks of oxygen. I get to the Brooklyn Bridge to cross over and a police officer stops me. He has five firefighters with him. And he says, listen, these guys are getting ready to walk across the bridge. Is it possible you can take them? So of course I said, yes. I dropped them off near the World Trade Center site right on the other side of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I looked around and I saw, everything looked like it was covered with gray snow. Some of my coworkers who had been there when the towers had fallen? Um, the vast majority of them, what we call walking wounded, that had minor injuries or no discernible injuries, but they were all covered with that dust. You saw people pulling rubble out of their pockets because they literally been pulled out of the debris. And as we see them, you know, we're running to them, we're kissing them, and we're hugging them, and we're laughing and joking with them because we're glad that they are alive, and they're glad that they are alive. We did find out that one of my coworkers did not make it. She was a 24 year old single mom of an eight-year-old son. Uh, Her name was Emel Marino. She had been doing triage on the ground level with the president of my ambulance company. And as the tower started to collapse, they all ran out together, but they separated and went in two different directions. And whereas he survived, she ended up being the first of all the first responder funerals. It was really stunning, the devastation that we saw. I mean, these were two 110-story buildings. Uh, Each story was an acre and we saw that reduced to maybe 12 stories of rubble and twisted steel and debris at one point there was a firefighter that came over to me because he had a lot of that dust and debris in his eyes and he wanted me to you know wash out his eyes with sterile water so he can go back in so I said sure no problem have a seat over here he says no if I sit down you're gonna try and make me lay down you make me lay down, you're going to try to take me out of here, and I'm not going anywhere. So I'm going to stand here, and you do what you need to do. So that's what happened. At some point around 5.25 in the afternoon, I saw a group of firefighters walking toward the direction of our staging area. And one of them basically said, oh, this building's getting ready to go. And they just kept walking past us. This tower, uh, it was Building 7, and so we moved, and then the towers just came down, and all that dust and debris went right back up into the air again. It permeated my equipment belt and my boots, um, both of my uniform. And at the time, I never thought that it was probably in me, too. And it wasn't until 10 years later that I found out that um, as a result of my service on there, I had cancer. It was a rare cancer.
1: Guy believes that telling his story is important.
12: You really don't hear a lot about emergency medical services personnel. You hear a lot more about the police officers and the firefighters. And of course, you know, their sacrifice, you know, was critical and it was deep. But, um, you know, when I volunteered at the 9-11 Tribute Museum, you know, I always make sure that I mention the sacrifice of emergency medical services personnel. And I tell each person's story of the eight people that were from EMS that died that day. I knew three of them. That's one of the reasons why I continue to tell my story. It's for those who can't tell their stories. It's for those who passed away. It's for those I know who haven't been down to the site since then, they can't bring themselves to come down, they can't bring themselves to talk about it, but I can, so I do, for those ones who can't.
6: Resurrecting 9-11 memories for me is like gripping out shards of broken glass protruding through that horrible white dust cloud. In the mid 70s, my wife and I get reservations at Windows of the World, the must go to restaurant of the moment. We leave carrying a tourist brochure with the header reading the closest some of us will ever get to heaven.
1: Philip Giambri is now a writer and performance poet. But 20 years ago, he was an IT manager at one of New York City's hospitals.
6: It happens that I wasn't at work when 9-11 happened. I was on jury duty, not very far from the World Trade Center. And not long after I was there, I felt a rumble, which I assumed was a subway passing underneath the court building or something. Not long after that, people started screaming. Uh, the FBI broke into the room and said, everybody has to evacuate. And they were hurting all the people in that area, east, away from the World Trade Center. I kept looking up at the building and I saw flames coming out. And I thought, well, I'm gonna go home and get my camera and come back and take some pictures. This ought to be interesting when they start rescuing people. My fellow juror with the radio walks ahead of me. I try to keep up so I can hear any new developments. He suddenly shouts out, the Pentagon was just bombed and it's on fire. That scares the hell out of me. This means we're at war now, but with who? Our trauma team from the hospital was headed downtown to set up a mini trauma hospital uh, looking for recovery people. In the IT department, everyone was wearing scrubs by then. Uh, Everyone stayed overnight. Uh, We waited in long lines to give blood, and no one ever came.
1: Philip reads his poem, remembrance of 9-11 at an event held every year
6: my wife returns to her office at rockefeller center overlooking saint patrick's cathedral she bears witness to a seemingly endless dirge of kilted drummers and pipers fire trucks draped in funeral bunting and flags and a sea of blue uniforms lining fifth avenue offering a final salute to lost brothers and sisters new york will bear a scar from a wound so deep in the heart that it will never completely heal We watch on TV as our president declares war to avenge the killings. I guess it's supposed to make us feel better. It doesn't. I choke up every time I read it.
12: The World Trade Center in New York City. It
13: will become the world's tallest building, rising over 1,300 feet into the sky. From a helicopter, we see the New York skyline as it will appear from the top of the Trade Center.
10: On Sundays, my brother Paul and I, this is 1969 in fact, we'd be at the future site of the world's tallest building, the World Trade Center.
1: Artist and academic Christopher Saucedo is a professor of sculpture.
10: Growing up in South Brooklyn, uh, we could look north for three or four years and watch these two enormous towers uh, being erected side by side and the buildings getting taller and taller and taller, and the buildings in—I think our collective New York minds were were indestructible.
1: Back in two thousand and one, Christopher was living in New Orleans, but his brothers Stephen and Gregory were both New York City firefighters. Gregory was one of the thousands who were lost that day.
10: I get a phone call at around four p.m. from Stephen. Stephen says, "Have you heard from Greg?" In that. One sentence, I'm instantly clear that Stephen is fine and Gregory is not.
1: Christopher decided that he had to make the journey to New York.
10: I got to the Verenzano Bridge, this giant suspension bridge between Staten Island, across New York Harbor into Brooklyn. And from the top of that bridge, I could look to my left, looking north, and I could see, this is very strange, I could see the absence of the buildings. And it was sad. I got myself down to ground zero as they suddenly started calling it. Uh, being at ground zero for just a few minutes made it clear that there was no one alive in the rubble a few days later.
1: In 2011, the Good Children Gallery in New Orleans commissioned Christopher to produce an exhibition which would open on the
10: 10th anniversary of the
1: attacks.
10: I'd avoided tackling the subject matter of September 11th directly for 10 years. But when I was assigned that date, I figured, no more hiding. Let's, Let's just address it. September 11th sky was incredibly blue. It was as blue as the skies I recall as a child in autumn. So I made a series of work called the World Trade Center as a Cloud by using very, very fine layers of white translucent linen pulp on a very, very, very blue field to try to conjure that autumn sky. In my images, you see below the 16-acre World Trade Center site. You don't see the building as it existed when it was rooted into terra firma, you see the building floating in an infinite sky. Then I took the one single individual, the paradigm firefighter, my my smiling, muscular, secure, happy brother, his portrait in front of a brick wall, and I branded it with a hot steel brand with images of liquid containers, pint glasses, 12-ounce cans, cups, containers that contain fluid volume. I'm fascinated by the interplay of those two polar opposites of fire and water. It is tricky to work with that image because he's my brother, and I keep. I, I'm in love with him and, and the privilege to represent his memory and keep his memory alive. But it's still my dead brother staring at me with his cheeks branded with those fluid volume containers. It's a direct shot to my soul and my heart and my feelings, and I'm sad to revisit those feelings, but I'm proud to revisit them.
1: Composer Eric Iwazin was teaching at the Juilliard School of Performing Arts on the morning of September 11th.
3: And we listened to the events unfold on a little radio, and we were listening in dead silence. And it's a moment that I'll never forget. It was frightening and very powerful. They gathered all the students and the teachers down in the Juilliard Theater, which is actually below ground. And Juilliard was considered a target, Lincoln Center was, because it was a big public space. And so the students, for the next two nights, they had to sleep in Juilliard Theater. Two days later, we were back teaching. And at that point, it was like, we have to get back to normal. So I'm teaching, and it felt trivial. Why am I teaching music when it seemed like the world was coming to an end and when such a tragedy was happening? But then a very powerful moment happened. Three days after the event, a thing went round that people should just go out on the street and they could hold candles. I tear up thinking about this, but at this moment, what happened is I was outside on the street and we had walked on and there was a little group of us holding the candles and there were all these people and what they were doing was singing and they were singing anything, popular music, uh, hymn tunes, uh, just anything and that was comforting and then I realized, yeah, what we're doing with the music, (laughs) that does mean something, it comforts people.
1: Within a week, Eric had composed a piece of music called A Hymn for the Lost and the Living.
3: It presents all these different emotions, the sadness, the uncertainty at the beginning of the piece, the strong emotions, and there's actually a chorale that occurs uh, in the middle of the piece, which is big and dramatic. The piece starts with the trumpet solo. The brass, you know, which a lot of times can play the heroic music, but can also be a very beautiful sound. A friend of mine, Dominique Duras, he went down with his trumpet just a couple days after 9 11. Now, people were not allowed there or anything, but the firemen saw him and they said, Could you play your trumpet? And so right there, there was still burning the smoke, all of that. And in the middle of that, he was playing trumpet. The one thing that music can do to serve a purpose is to both comfort people and provide a way of saying that there is beauty and also to provide hopefulness.
1: Coming up.
14: One person said, please include uh, the first responders and the heroism of them. Another one chimes in, we need a poem that's very positive about the future of America. I mean, the more they talk, the more this poem became an impossibility.
7: Some students did want to talk about it and did want to create this play and collect these stories. And there were definitely some students who didn't want to talk about it at all, didn't think the play was a good idea. That's all to come
1: as 9-11, the day that changed our lives forever, continues on the BBC World Service.
10: On September 11, 2001, the world changed.
0: I said, this is it. This is the bomb. They did it.
10: I'm Jim O'Grady, with the story of a new American who risked everything to try to take down a terrorist cell.
0: You have to talk like a terrorist.
10: You have to think like a terrorist. Blind Spot: The Road to 9-11, from the History Channel and WNYC Studios.
0: Saturday afternoon at 2, part of Radio Catskill's September 11th 20th anniversary coverage. And yes, that special is uh, coming up. That's what will be taking us back into our regular schedule at 4 o'clock. So at 2 o'clock, blind spot, two-hour-long, in-depth narrative story. And then at 4, it's on the media. Followed by all things considered at 5, we'll get an update on the latest that's been going on today since we left the extended morning edition, weekend edition just a little while ago. I'm Jason Dole. I'm here with you on this afternoon, this uh, sunny afternoon. We expect it to be clear to partly cloudy tonight, overnight low down to 55. And tomorrow, uh, partly cloudy and warmer with a high near 79. So we're inching back up near that uh, 80-degree territory. And uh, it is Saturday. It is September 11th, and we are doing a September 11th specials Here this uh, afternoon, we were doing it this morning, special programming, and uh, uh, coming up in the next hour, we have Peace Talks Radio. It's an earlier program that they they recorded a number of years ago, uh, but it still resonates today when they're talking to uh, family members of victims of the September 11th attacks uh, who uh, don't want their families' names, their loved one's names being used uh, for unpeaceful reasons. So on peace talks radio that's a conversation that will be coming up in the next hour right now we're going to go back for the second half of new for 9 11 the day that changed our lives forever from the bbc uh focusing on the stories specifically of uh, of new yorkers this is radio catskill we're keeping you connected
1: I'm Joan Masterpolo, and this is part two of 9-11, The Day That Changed Our Lives Forever, on the BBC World Service. The plaza of the World Trade Center, the area between the North Pool and the South Pool, I'm walking through it right now, and it's actually quite quiet here. As we approach the South Pool, you will hear The absolutely beautiful waterfall, individual rivulets of water. And if you look at the water, you'll notice that it glistens. And I call that an ocean of tears.
15: Some people think, oh, it only happened in New York. No, the reverberations of 9-11 were felt globally.
1: Writer Wajahat Ali was a student at UC Berkeley in 2001.
15: And for some strange reason, at that moment, I had this very clear, almost uh, vision of the next 10 years. And I saw chaos. I saw fear mongering. As Muslims, I knew that the blowback would be against innocent civilians because people, especially my fellow Americans, they would need vengeance.
1: At the time, Wajahat was part of the Muslim Student Association, listed on their website as the media contact.
15: That day, we got emails and hate mails. And somehow, overnight, I became both us and them. Us as an American and them, I became Al-Qaeda. I became both a citizen and I became a suspect. There came these requests from right-wing radio. What's happening in Islam and Muslims? Uh, Where are the moderate Muslims? How come they haven't condemned terrorism? And if you go back and you look, Muslims across the world actually condemned it. Uh, there were vigils in Muslim-majority countries, but it didn't matter. And you realized that that was the beginning of something called the condemning game, where you would have to perpetually condemn the violent actions of violent criminals you've never met in countries you've never visited, and no matter what you do, it's never enough. It was never enough. Pretty much most of the conversations were like, do you condemn it? Are you moderate? What are you doing to push back against extremism? And I was like, I'm 20 years old. I, I, I'm, I play video games. What? And it wasn't just me. It was anyone who looked muslim And the first hate crime after 9-11 was not of a Muslim, but was of a sick Indian-American immigrant named Balbir Singh, who was a gas station owner in Arizona. But the person who, who killed him said, I-, I have to get revenge for 9-11. I'm going to go get one of those guys. And he found a brown-skinned, bearded turban man, and that was close enough.
1: While he was at Berkeley, Wajahat was taking a short story writing class with author and playwright
15: Ishmael Reed. He said, you know, I'm a black man and we as black people have had to fight for 400 years. And I'm looking at the news right now and I see what they're saying about your people, your Muslim, right? I said, yeah. One of the ways to fight back is through art and storytelling. Think about becoming a playwright. Write a play. Because I think you're really good with dialogue and characters. And you ever read those American plays like Death of a Salesman and Long Day's Journey into Night and Fences? I'm like, yes. He goes, write me something like that from the lens of a Pakistani or Muslim. I've never read that story.
1: This resulted in his play, The Domestic Crusaders.
15: A day in the life of an American family that just happens to be Muslim and Pakistani. The grandfather, Hakim, who survived partition, his immigrant son, Salman, who has allegedly achieved the American dream, who is married to Kulsoum, and their three American-born children, and they all reconvene at the family home for Gofur's 21st birthday, who's visiting from college. And you see expectations, crushed dreams and hopes. You see generational conflict, sibling rivalry. And there's only one, I think, direct reference to 9-11. When the father, Salman, he says to his wife, Kulsoum, when those two towers fell, we fell with them. The play begins with the adhan, the call to prayer. And you see the mother, Khulsum, and she could be anywhere. Like, what's happening? Are we in the Middle East? Are we in South Asia? And then she kind of does a little prayer. she And she fiddles around with the radio. And then you hear Tom Jones. It's not unusual. And that's because the mom loves Tom Jones. And then all of a sudden people are like, what's happening?
12: It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. Not to have fun
14: with anyone.
15: If you've lived in these homes, that's not jarring at all. That's very normal. But to audiences, they were like, this kind of upends our expectations. The first time that we did it, the producer Ishmael and my director, Carla Blanc, said we have to get the buy-in of your community. So we did it locally first. We got a standing ovation. My community really liked it and appreciated it. So the next year, we decided to do it at San Jose in Berkeley and mainstream Artists and mainstream gatekeepers said, nobody cares about this ethnic story. And pretty much what they were saying is, there's no white people. And so we had to do everything ourselves. And then, based off of that success, we thought, oh, we showed up and we proved it. Surely somebody would take a swing at domestic crusaders, and no one did.
1: Wajahat remounted his play in
15: 2009. When we premiered on 9 11 2009 in New York and Poets Cafe, it sold out. And at the end of the five-week run, we were told that it broke, at that time, the New Yorican's box office records. Initially, there was some anger in New York. How dare this Muslim premiere this play on 9-11? Has he no respect? But I knew that that would be short-lived and and small murmurs, and I knew that once they saw the play, that the diverse audiences would appreciate it, which is exactly what happened.
1: The Domestic Crusaders has since been performed internationally, and an updated version is being published this year. Tim Brown is a retired New York firefighter who was working at the Office of Emergency Management in Seven World Trade Center at the time. After the first plane hit, he made his way immediately to the North Tower.
13: Right in front of me was firefighter Chris Blackwell from Special Operations Rescue 3 in the Bronx. I had worked with Chris in the 90s for about seven years. We were very, very close, like blood brothers. And all he did with his life was save people. And then Chris said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. And for Chris to say that to me is significant because of what we had been through together over the last seven or eight years. I said, I know Chris, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And Chris turned around and went in the stairwell and went up. He knew when he made that decision to go in that stairwell and go up to save the lives of people he didn't know that he was likely not coming back but he still did it someone yelled my name and I could see my best friend Captain Terry Hatton Terry was six foot four so I could see him I ran to my friend and my head went into his chest and shoulder and we squeezed each other tight and he kissed me on the right cheek and he said I love you brother I may never see you again and he turned around and he went in the stairwell and he went up with his men, knowing that he was likely not coming back. Terry and the men of Rescue 1 made it to the 83rd floor where they were fighting the fire and saving people's lives when they got trapped by an interior localized collapse. All the firefighters that went back to rescue Terry and the men of Rescue 1 perished
1: When the South Tower was hit, Tim went over to help with the evacuation. Seeing that there were so many injured people, he immediately rounded up some paramedics.
13: And it's about 20 feet to the doorway of the South Tower, and that's when the South Tower collapsed. It began with a very loud crack of the steel snapping. It was so loud that it echoed through the canyons of lower Manhattan. So I yelled to the paramedics to follow me and we went in the door of the Marriott Three World Trade Center, and with a snap of your fingers, it went pitch black. The South Tower was collapsing onto the Marriott, and the Marriott was collapsing around us. I hit the ground. You couldn't see anything. You couldn't hear anything, because it was so loud. The dust was so thick that it was caking in your eyes, in your ears, in your nose. I was trying to stuff my face into my shirt to filter it out. And I know as a firefighter, the safest place in a collapsing building is next to a vertical column. And I quickly found a very large steel vertical column. And I wrapped my arms around it and I held on with all my might. The wind was so strong that it blew the helmet off my head. My legs were up in the air and it was trying to blow me out into the street. And I knew if I let go of this piece of steel that I was surely dead and I waited to get crushed. But as fast as it started, it stopped, and I was alive. I couldn't believe it. There was a firefighter coming in from the outside yelling to us, come this way, come this way. About 30 of us survived. There were only two spots in the 18-acre site where a group of people survived. They later did a scientific study, the wind that was trying to blow me out into the street was 185 miles per hour. That's just about impossible to survive. So the only reason I found that vertical column, the only reason I was able to hold onto it, I believe, was divine intervention. It was not my turn to be called home to my God. He wanted me to stay here and speak of the heroes and the horrors of 9-11.
1: Tim now spends a lot of his time doing charitable work with the Stephen Siller Tunnel to Towers Foundation.
13: Stephen Siller was a New York City firefighter who ran through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel with 60 pounds of gear under his arm, approaching the South Tower when the tower collapsed and killed him. In his memory, they build smart, adaptive homes for catastrophically injured military. They pay off mortgages for Gold Star families and first responder police and fire families. These are the people in America who we owe a debt of gratitude to.
1: Teacher Annie Toms was 25 at the time of the September 11th attacks and was working at Stuyvesant High School, just four blocks from the World Trade Center.
7: The first tower fell and uh, we felt the building shake. And uh, the, the TVs that had been on that were, you know, were showing what was happening, um, everything went to static because that was the tower with the antenna. I had um, a group of ninth graders. All of us, we didn't really know what was going on. My homeroom was in the cafeteria. We couldn't see anything from the windows of the cafeteria. But after a little while, we did evacuate the building. After the evacuation, the school was closed for three weeks. One of the things that struck me at the moment was this human need to tell your individual story. And we got two student producers and a student director, and then we advertised widely in the school community. So we did this probably in mid-October. We cast 10 students from all four grades and from the various different uh, racial and ethnic demographics of our school community. Those 10 uh, student actors interviewed 27 people and then transcribed and edited down these first-person monologues and then practiced and performed as the people they had interviewed. So we did the interviews mostly November and December and then performed in uh, early February 2002. The
1: play was eventually called With Their Eyes. But Annie says that not
7: everyone was happy about her choice of drama project. One of the interviewees was a senior named Max Willens, and he was 100% opposed to us doing the play. (laughs) He was very angry about it. But one of our cast members was friends with him and basically said to him, you know, well, if you want your perspective to be represented, you should be one of the interviewees. Max's interview turned into actually two monologues and then served as a kind of a counterpoint to some of the other monologues that we had. We, we paired Max's angriest monologue with a monologue from another senior a girl named Mira Rap Hooper. So Mira's monologue was about a flag ceremony that happened you know, a couple months after 9-11. So I'm just sort of jumping in here. Um, like people volunteer their, their time, time to be, to be part of this thing.
11: That involved us walking all the way down to the battery in the freezing cold, and carrying these huge flags, because they wanted to be part of this uniting of everyone who'd been affected by it. And I don't know if people looked into it that much and that ideologically, but people wanted to represent their countries, and people wanted to be part of something that so happy and smiling, even though it was a sad thing, because we were commemorating three months after September 11th. It was a really nice occasion just regardless of what had happened like half a mile up there were still beautiful things below and beautiful
7: things above and before long long, there'd be beautiful beautiful things things there too and then we went straight to max which began there were people there all the time and they weren't even even
9: new yorkers they weren't even visiting some you know taking a look at, at something that used to be there something they used to know There were people from Kansas and Oklahoma and, you know, Missouri who'd seen those places on postcards. And they wanted to buy hats and pins, And they wanted to sing God Bless America and things things
7: like like that, which made me sick. The pictures. The pictures were probably what really did it for me. There were these disposable cameras. You know, the the,
9: kind kind of people, you know, they whip out for for trips to Disneyland and the
7: Grand Canyon.
9: One time... Someone actually asked me to take a photo of them, standing in a, in a
7: solemn pose with with a wreckage as a backdrop. I couldn't do it. I nearly I threw, the, threw camera the camera at them. them. I just, I couldn't, it made me sick. So that was sort of the contrast there. We didn't go into it thinking about it as therapeutic. I mean, looking back at it later, the timing of those interviews... It was exactly at the point where people were starting to try to make sense of what they had seen and experienced. With Their Eyes has just been republished. It was published for the first anniversary by HarperCollins. Since then has been performed as a complete play by high schools all across the country. Portions of it have been performed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's just had a very long and varied life. Ray Burge,
1: a Lower Manhattan resident, was late for work on the morning of September 11th.
5: In the very, very basement of the World Trade Center complex, there's a metro, a Port Authority transit. And it's the way many people from Jersey get into Lower Manhattan. And I take the reverse commute. Um, I actually overslept. So it was by fate that I was late, just happened to be walking into the mezzanine level. And within about a minute, there was a large explosion. I knew that this was off the charts in terms of the, the severity of the explosion. And I walked back towards my apartment, which is five blocks south. And as I was walking south, I heard what I thought was a military fighter jet coming in. And I looked up and saw that it was a commercial airliner heading into the South Tower. Sprinted back to my apartment and called my wife who was working in the Empire State Building and she picked up immediately and she said, Hi, Ray, you're, you're, I'm glad to hear your voice. I, I, I'm watching from my window and all I could say to her was, Heidi, get out of that building. All the debris, all the dust cloud came south and encased our building and I had left my window open about a quarter of an inch and our apartment was destroyed because of the dust. It had crushed concrete and fluorescent bulbs and asbestos and it got all the way over to Brooklyn. It was it was everywhere and after of course a couple of weeks it was all over the city. I had a, a six year old son and we were particularly worried about him because, you know, he has his whole life ahead of him and I felt that if he was breathing in all this toxic dust constantly that he would have long term health effects. And I was right, there's a huge problem of the World Trade Center sickness that's surfacing now.
1: Like me, Ray is now a guide who takes visitors around the 9-11 memorial.
5: But the reason I did it was actually I was sitting down in the near the World Trade Center and one of the tours came through and I eavesdropped and was listening to the person tell their story. And I followed the person to the end of the tour and I said, you know, I, I have a very similar story. And that person encouraged me to go in and actually talk to people working there. And it just worked out. Uh, it was therapeutic for me. It started in about 2008. I do it about twice a month still, and a lot of the volunteers, we call ourselves the 9-11 families, and like Joan and others, we've become friends.
14: Yesterday I lay awake in the palm of the night, a fine rain stole in, unhelped by any breeze, and when I saw the silver glaze on the windows, I started with A, with Ackerman as it happened.
1: Billy Collins had just been appointed the U.S. Poet Laureate in 2001. Billy was called on by Congress to write a poem for the first anniversary memorial event.
14: I'm not a political poet. I don't write about public issues. I don't write about the headlines. I'm not even much of an autobiographical poet. So this was way out of my range to write on a subject uh, so politically charged. And there was a long silence when I said, I don't know if I can. I said to them, I will find a poem. And I thought I'd probably find a one by Walt Whitman. They didn't accept that. Uh, they said, but if you did write a poem. I said, I'm not writing a poem. One person said, but if you did, please include the first responders and the heroism of them. Another one chimes in, we need a poem that's very positive about the future of America. I mean, the more they talked, the more this poem became an impossibility. Fast forward a little bit. I think about a week later, I woke up about five in the morning and it was kind of bugging me. I was, I think I was hearing my mother's voice, like, get off the bench. And I couldn't figure out how I could do this, being kind of a, a personal poet. And I, I thought, oh, wait a minute, I could write an elegy so I could keep it within a poem for the dead. And then I thought I could use the alphabet as another constraining a device, and move letter by letter like stepping stones. Then Baxter and Calabro, Davis and Eberling, names falling into place as droplets fell through the dark. I started just using the word names as kind of a mantra. You know, names printed on the ceiling of the night, names slippering around a watery bend, 26 willows on the banks of a stream like the letters of the alphabet. And then I walk out uh, in the morning, it kind of goes through the day a little bit, and I see flowers. And then I names are sti- stitched in the air a name under a photograph t- taped to a mailbox, monogram on a torn shirt. I see you spelled out on storefront windows and on the bright unfurled awnings of this city. I say the syllables as I turn a corner Kelly and Lee, Medina, Nardella, and O'Connor. There was no X. That was a problem, which I tried to solve by putting it in parenthesis. I, w- I said Vanicore and Wallace, and now X comes. And in parenthesis, I wrote, let X stand, if it can, for the ones unfound. And names lifted from a hat, like some kind of lottery, just the luck involved and whether you were got to work on time or not. And finally, names wheeled into the dim warehouse of memory. And that's what this poem is supposed to be doing in that tradition of memorializing an event. So many names, there is barely room on the walls of the heart. And that's the way it ends there.
1: Billy's poem, The Names, is now read every year.
14: On 9-11, in schools and in churches and various uh, ceremonies honoring 9-11. It's taken on a life of its own.
1: And of course, I have my own story. I live one block west of the World Trade Center. I had walked through the World Trade Center on that morning. Work for me was in Jersey City, on the other side of the Hudson River. And my office was right on the river, so I could see the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. I saw both planes strike the towers And I saw both towers collapse. After the second tower was hit, I called my husband. He was absolutely frantic because, I mean, he was right in the middle of this. He saw the explosion on the south tower. He felt it, everything here shook. And so I was so afraid for him. And then I lost touch with my husband for about seven hours. And I can't begin to tell you that when we finally heard from him, the sense of relief. We were able to come back to the city on the Monday following September 11th. And when I walked up to the 15th floor and I opened my apartment door, all of my apartment windows were completely shattered and blown in. All of my personal belongings were covered with dust. There was no way that we could live here. I was actually escorted up with a National Guardsman who had said to me, Joan, you have 10 minutes to get in, get what you need, and get out. And I, I remember thinking to myself, well, what can you do in 10 minutes? I probably spent seven minutes looking out of my living room window in total shock. I saw twisted steel dust and debris everywhere on the buildings on the light poles on the cars and i remember just thinking to myself how am i ever going to get my life back together my beautiful neighborhood it's such a beautiful area here had been turned into what looked like a nuclear holocaust a war zone But it was also the beginning of a very beautiful story for us. Over 500,000 people came to the area after September 11th. There were people here from other parts of the country, from other parts of the world. And they simply just wanted to help. And so in February of 2002, we were able to come back. After September 11th, I was restless. I felt like I needed to do something to thank everyone who came to my support. I also felt that I needed to do something to honor those people who went to work on September 11th and simply vanished. And so in January of 2010, I joined the 9-11 Tribute Museum. It has become an absolute cornerstone and staple of my life, a place where we all come together to share history and to support each other and make sure that the story of September 11th is never forgotten. You've been listening to 9-11, the day that changed our lives forever. The program was presented by me, Joe Mastropolo, and produced by Ian McNess and Ashley Byrne. The actors were Kathy Gorey and Ian Sharrock, and this was a Made in Manchester production for the BBC World Service.
7: WJFF Jeffersonville, Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.
3: You're listening to Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone and on your smart speaker.
4: On this week's On the Media, the of the Taliban poses an existential threat to media outlets that serve up news and entertainment to millions of Afghans.
6: A lot of people felt initially that the Taliban would shut us down, but for us, it was the exodus of our most experienced people that almost
4: shut us down. Also, the 9-11 truther movie that birthed a conspiracy movement on this week's On the Media from WNYC.
3: Support for Radio Catskill comes
0: from The NeverSink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products, and catering. Now offering takeout. NeverSinkGeneralStore.com And from listeners like you, WJFF Jeffersonville.
3: You're listening to Radio Catskill.
5: The following program was
14: recorded and released in 2007.